All right. I'm Mike Durning, one of the teaching team here. Glad to have you. We have some visitors here today. I hope your experience with church is better than a guy that I was talking to who said that uh, he was in the living room. He was seated somewhere where he couldn't see the television. Uh, but his wife was watching TV. He presumed it was a horror movie because she kept saying, no, you idiot, don't go in that church. Don't go in that church. And then he walked around and saw that she was watching their wedding video. <laughs> oh. Hopefully we'll do better than that today. I don't mean a wedding, but better than that experience with church. Uh, it falls to me to give you the introduction to our series on the book of Proverbs. You may recall that some months ago, I preached through the life of Solomon in a sermon called The Smartest Man in the Room. Uh, that guy, Solomon, called in scripture the wisest man who had ever lived, is the one who wrote most of this book and who collected the sayings we find in it in the few parts that he did not write. We're going to spend most of the morning in chapter 9 of Proverbs. Let those who will be wise turn there to prepare. Those of you who don't want to be wise, keep running. Wisdom's trying to catch you. You're running faster. That's okay. Uh, keep licking the inside of the uh, light bulb socket and see if the experience is different the third or fourth time. But uh, wisdom is of incomparable value. According to Solomon, it's true. And many who are looking for wisdom fail to find it, despite seeking it diligently among the greatest minds. The classic story is of the person who climbs the mountain to find the guru at the top of the mountain who could dispense wisdom. Here are a few cartoons about that experience. There's the first one. Uh, a guy climbs to the top of the mountain, and the sign at the top says, next wise man, please. So he has to go all the way down and go up the next mountain. So, uh, here's another a guy's climbing. He says, let us go and consult the wise man. He gets to the top. He says, great wise man, have you found what you were looking for? And the wise man holds up his phone and says, oh, yes, reception is very good. I have three bars. All right. And the last one, because I always love a groaner, the gangster gets to the top of the mountain and says, oh, a wise guy, eh? So you can climb to the top of the mountain and see the wise man there to get wisdom, but nobody can guarantee you find it. But the book of Proverbs can help. Today, I hope to convince you that if you seek wisdom, Proverbs is a great place to dive in. And more importantly, I hope to persuade you that wisdom is a vital part of the Christian life and encourage you to seek wisdom and do what it says. In fact, that's our big idea today. The purpose of the book of Proverbs is to teach us how to pursue and be transformed by wisdom. It starts with these words in Proverbs 1. Now, I know I not, that's not what I told you to turn to, but let me just read it as it goes by on the screen as an intro to the book. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now note the wording there. One of the key aspects of wisdom he describes in these verses is receptivity. Wisdom is something you receive if you will have it. This theme comes up again and again in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs was, as I said, penned or accumulated by Solomon. When was it written? It was written about 1000 BC or so. Late Bronze Age best suits the descriptions of the wealth of Solomon's time. There's wiggle room there depending upon what archaeological school you prefer. And I know after the service, a lot of you from different archaeological schools will come to the front and want to argue about it. I'm, never mind. I'll just leave it there. Proverbs falls into several sections. Chapters 1 through 9 
Proverbs by Solomon. It's kind of a fatherly advice section. This section sets the tone for the book and should be read at one sitting when possible and may be particularly valuable for teens. Then chapters 10 through 22, 16, Proverbs of Solomon, that's random sayings that Solomon penned. This is where the section begins we usually think of when we think of Proverbs, where it's many loose, disconnected sayings on various topics. And then from chapter 22, 17 through the end, we have sayings of the wise, the wise being plural there, random sayings from various wise ones. Uh, the key is that it seems likely that this last section is ones accumulated by Solomon that uh, he considered to be other wise people that he respected. I think it's important to note that as we get into the book, there will be many short proverbs or sayings given, and they are wise observations, but they are not promises from God. We shouldn't read the book of Proverbs like you do, say, the book of Romans, you know? For example, I can take a wise saying about saving money resulting in prosperity, and I can follow it, and it will generally be true, almost always. But you know, a tornado can wipe my home and property out, an accident or illness might debilitate me, the whole picture can change. That doesn't mean the proverb isn't true, it just means it's not 100% guaranteed. Results may vary, as they say. With that in mind, let us begin our journey into wisdom. Have you ever realized that you had just behaved foolishly? At that moment, you have a decision to make. You can keep going down that path, or you can redirect. You say, well, how could I be a fool? Well, maybe like they say about the insane, would a fool really know if he were a fool? Maybe not. Proverbs will give you a chance to find out and to adjust your life to stop being a fool, foolproofing your life, if you will. Uh, maybe it's more extreme than that. Maybe you wake up and realize that you've been acting foolishly for a while, making bad choices that endanger all you want to accomplish with your life. You realize you've been letting the bad choices before dictate more bad choices on. And where it will lead you ultimately is not good. At that moment, you have a decision to make, one that will determine if you fall fully into the grip of folly or change paths to once again embrace wisdom. Call it wisdom, call it logic, call it gut feel, call it the Holy Spirit. Those are distinct things, but they frequently speak with one voice in a situation like this. At such times, your choices frequently are the hinges of your destiny, determining which way your life will go. Have you ever met a fool? Now, we've all done something foolish before, but have you ever met a person who was truly and totally a fool? You're thinking of someone right now, aren't you? <laughs> right? Judging is a bad thing, I want to remind you. But really practically, you know the steps that got them there if you've known them long enough. What made them fools? Can you avoid their path? Proverbs will have much to say about our associates and the dangers of allowing fools to hold sway in our lives. So with these three thoughts, the only remainder is, will we listen? Because as Solomon will observe again and again, a fool doesn't listen at all. So here we are, Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs 9 falls into three sections. The Wisdom Hotel. Yes, I'll explain what that means. Some thoughts on wisdom and folly. And then lastly, the Folly Hotel. I do want to mention that some of the outline terms I used to describe the two hotels were lifted from a great book about Proverbs years ago called Wellsprings of Life, which is now out of print, thankfully, so no one can read it and know that I stole it from him. <laughs> Wait, I just said so. Never mind. Uh, let's begin reading about the hotel wisdom, all right? Here we go. Verse 1, Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. 
Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Now, in the ancient world, what we today call hotels were usually like a bed and breakfast, a boarding place, an inn. People with the means to do so set up their large houses as hotels and made them appropriate to the clientele that they were seeking. Several things happened today with hotels. You're on vacation driving, and it's time to turn into a hotel for the night. If you're a certain kind of traveler, you seek a luxurious place to stay. The hotel's an experience for you, right? Cool rooms, modern architecture, nice decor, an incredible mattress like you would never have in your home. Perhaps there's a jacuzzi in the room and a fireplace, and you're happy and somewhat poorer at the end of the stay. Those rooms don't come cheaply. If you're on the opposite extreme, you view your hotel as a shortstop on the way to the ultimate destination of the vacation. The goal is only sleep. If the room's a little dingy, no big deal, so long as it's not infested or anything. But just out of curiosity, how many of you lean toward the higher end? You prefer middle or above? When you, okay. How many of you really are going for the cheapest one possible? All right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you want cheap and anything without bed bugs will do. Everybody should talk to Randy Trigger, by the way, about his adventures in finding low-cost hotels. <laughs> he seems to take it as a personal challenge. <laughs> Maybe ask his wife what she thinks about it, too. So. <laughs> So either way, whichever side you're on, you know your own criteria, right? My wife doesn't like external access. You know, the ones where you open the door and you're outside? I'm fine with it. I don't care. And these hotels are built, signage is placed, and advertisements put out to draw in the clientele to which they cater. Same thing back in the ancient world. So here in our passage, wisdom is the innkeeper in a fine place. It's a beautiful house with carved pillars. The restaurant has fine dining. She sent out her young women to cry out to the customers to enter. Don't read anything shady into that. It's more like in the early 1900s when people would walk down the street with sandwich board signs, you know? They're hired to go about shouting out to the opportunity to stay in a fine hotel. It's not young men doing it back then because in that era they were all in the fields or soldiering or apprenticed in a trade, but the young women were free to be hired to shout out the glories of the inn. And what is that cry? Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. The cry is, I have what you lack. Wisdom is inviting people in to be nourished with insight, with sense. Look at the verses in detail with me. Verses one and two, wisdom is productive. Wisdom is a builder, not someone who tears down. She builds her own house. She prepares a meal for anyone who's willing to have some of her food. Three through five, we see that wisdom is a teacher. She has sent out messengers, and she herself stands on a high place calling out to everyone, hey, come here. If you don't have wisdom, come in here and eat my food and drink of my drink, and you'll learn to be wise. We also see, verse six, wisdom is offering a good life. She's asking everyone who will come to do so and learn about what life is really about. True life, meaningful life. Guarantees? No. This is not promises, but wisdom. A life lived in wisdom may not be better than the life of some other person you envy, <laughs> which you shouldn't do, but a life lived in wisdom will be better than the life you would have had if you've chosen folly instead. So the message of Proverbs is clear here. Wisdom is available. Wisdom is pleasant. Wisdom brings a good result. Let me illustrate for a moment about a fine hotel. Years ago, my wife found us the most delightful hotel to visit at the end of a conference we were attending. It was in California, and it was called Casa Malibu, now torn down by stinking Roger Ellison. So anyway, never mind. It was in California, Casa Malibu. That bland, 
front is not at all representative of the wonders that were inside. It was not expensive. It was priced kind of like a hotel in Traverse City. Redstone walkways, palm trees, roses covering the walls. And each room had an oceanfront view, a fireplace. You could literally leave the glass door while open and listen to the roaring surf all night long. And they say that movie star Lana Turner checked into that very hotel back in the 60s and never left. She stayed there the rest of her life. She knew perfection when she saw it. And there could be nothing better that I could advise you to do than this. Listen to the cry of wisdom and her maids. Check into the wisdom inn and never check out again. Stay there the rest of your days. Retire to the wisdom inn and find joy in true life. Okay, that's the end of section one, the longest one, actually. Solomon two, uh, section two, Solomon takes us on a quick journey about wisdom. Look, as, look with the beginning of verse seven with me. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. What's he saying here? Well, first of all, Wisdom cannot be forced on the unwilling. The first reason she cries out is that wisdom cannot be forced on someone. This verse talks about the mocker, the person who actually mocks at wisdom. When you try to force wisdom on the mocker, they despise it. But when you try to teach wisdom to some person who is wise or already on the path of wisdom, they're grateful. By the way, forcing wisdom on someone who is unwilling only builds their resentment. I've seen it time and time again with parenting of teens or trying to guide uh, parents trying to guide their kids who are young adults. If you're dealing with someone who doesn't want to listen, doesn't want to be instructed, doesn't want to choose wisdom, the more you pressure them, the more they'll resist. Note in the passage, wisdom doesn't pressure. She pleads. She cries out. She motivates. But she doesn't make anybody do anything. You cannot control people, but you can persuade. Number two, wisdom must begin with the fear of the Lord, according to verses 10 through 11. There is a foundation to wisdom, the fear of the Lord, it says. True, full wisdom embraces a realization of the Lord in his ways. So we have our bicycle here. You're riding a bike, and the wheels spin. Life is like a wheel spinning on a hub, right? They spin evenly, comfortab comfortably, because the hub of each wheel is in the center of that wheel, Right? That's why it can spin. Now, break the hub. If I took a hammer to this and I broke that hub right out, could you ride this bike anymore, Jack? No. no. It would at least, at, worst, at best, spin unevenly, but probably not spin at all, right? No spinning wheels here. What is that hub? God is at the center. I don't mean astronomically, like he's at the exact center of the universe. I mean ideologically, logically, philosophically, morally, theologically, socially, the hub of life is the Lord. Trying to understand reality without the Lord at the center is like trying to spin a wheel with an off-center hub or no hub at all. It just doesn't work well. That is why wisdom begins with what Solomon calls the fear of the Lord. That will also come up again and again in Proverbs. When I see that the world, the universe, revolves around the Lord, all of life revolves around the Lord, I'm better prepared to understand it. Then, as I, know, always, as I know his ways, I begin to align myself to this. This is the fear of the Lord, not a terror of what he may do to me, 
though that may be merited that I'm particularly evil and don't seek forgiveness, but rather a healthy respect and realization of his ways and how I must align myself with them. Third one, wisdom is not adopted to please others, according to verse 12. It's not about something making you, it's about you choosing. If we listen to her cry, we win all the benefits of following wisdom. That's why we choose wisdom. Not because someone else pressures us or insists, and if we neglect her, we alone bear the price. All right, section three now, the Folly Hotel. We'll move on to another hotel. We talked about the beautiful inn that wisdom builds. Let's talk about the opposite one, a very different sort of hotel. Verse 13. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. But all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little, little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. This is the hotel created and staffed by Folly. This is a particularly bad one. Let me demonstrate a story of a very bad hotel. Years ago, Terry was traveling with me in association with my job, and they booked me at a hotel trying to save some money. Let me read the real review I posted later that night from a different hotel, because we did not stay there. <laughs> it should have been a sign to me that even navigation failed to locate the street properly, off by about 100 yards. We pulled into the hotel and crowded into the tiny lobby. The tragically overworked young man behind the counter was out of breath from running elsewhere to help guests. There was nobody else there. But his friendliness persuaded us to give it a try. His friendliness turned out to be the only good thing about this hotel. There was no elevator in this three-story monstrosity, and after tramping up to the proper floor, we navigated past the piles of bedsheets in the hallway, wondering why housekeeping was still active at 6 p.m. Screaming emerged from rooms along the hallway, and not all of it was children. The hallway reeked of cigarette smoke in this supposedly smoke-free hotel. We were in luck. The crime scene investigation tape was down before we got to the room. <laughs> I, I kid, I don't know there was a crime. Our key card failed to unlock the door for several tries, as if it too was afraid to enter. <laughs> I really posted this, by the way, it's still there. There was a light switch at the entryway that seemed to do nothing at all. Two of the three lamps in the room worked only after some manipulation. My wife explored while I settled in to set up my computer. She snapped pictures to send her friends of the duct taped sink. <laughs> a new solution for leaks. The hole partway through the bathroom door Stains on, well, it might be easier to just identify the objects without stains. There was a stain at the base of the bedspread near the floor that looked like pizza, or was it blood? Maybe there had been crime scene tape. After dinner, upon return to the room, reflecting on the hotel, we began to feel itchy. Now, I have no reason to believe that there were any bugs. We didn't see any. But the entire condition of the property had such sway over our minds that we were experiencing, I guess you'd call them hypochondriac bites. <laughs> We returned to the lobby and checked out. The cheery young man behind the counter didn't seem surprised. He says, don't worry, this happens all the time. <laughs> so polite. I hope you got a real job somewhere. <laughs> so bad hotels can disappoint like few others. Why do people stay in them? Well, usually economy, but there's a variety of reasons. Uh, sometimes other reasons. Here's the exterior of one of the rooms at the Coral Court Motel in St. Louis, Missouri. Note the conveniently attached garages so you can pull your cars in, close the door, and not have your car seen there. I leave it to you to speculate why someone wouldn't want their uh, vehicle to be seen there. These are the kinds of places we're talking about here, okay? 
Look at the features of this hotel and its proprietor. Folly is crying out, inviting you to the Folly Hotel. She is, first of all, undiscerning and unproductive, according to verses 13 and 14. She's simple. And unlike wisdom, she isn't accomplishing anything. This is the way it is for her followers, too. The place is run down, or even perhaps on the verge of falling down, because she just sits around doing nothing. Laziness and folly frequently go together. She is, secondly, enticing the naive with illicit pleasure, verses 15 through 17. That phrase is very specific. She's urging people to do evil things in secret. By the way, it's interesting to note that both wisdom and folly cry out for the simple to come in, but the offer is very different, and what happens within is very different. She, folly, entices with illicit things. So let me ask the question, do you have a secret life? Something that you allow yourself that nobody else knows about? Unless your secret life is that you go out at night fighting crime with a cape and mask, your secret life is probably the product of folly. Actually, if you're really bad at fighting crime, it's probably still the product of folly. Anyway, this kind of life will destroy you. You should deal with it. This is the characteristic, the life to which folly is calling. Let me be clear, this is not about promiscuity alone. There are many ways to be a fool. Now, it's not about sexual promiscuity per se, but Solomon is using that as an example of the kinds of follies that can grab us and destroy our lives. Number three, she is deceiving and destroying her followers. Destruction predicted in verse 18. The very thing that draws them in is a path to death. Now, let's take that sexual immorality thing and run with it as an example, then I'll give a few others. Let's use those little stick figures people put on their cars as though people would tell this story with those. Uh, Let's take a guy. He has a marriage, a home, two kids, and a cat. There's a boat on the lake or a cabin up north. You choose. Either way works for our story. In a time of folly, he finds another woman and pursues a relationship with her. You notice the rest of the family all has frowns. Uh, the truth comes out. The marriage is ruined. The kids are tossed about, disappointed, angry. Assets of the household that once were adequate are now supporting two households and have to be sold. The kids are hurt. The ex-wife is hurting. Everybody has fallen a level economically. The man feels he has erred because depressed, pursues, let us say, adventures in alcoholism instead of his previous career. The kids are getting no support from him, and everybody wonders what happened. It may be dark humor to think of it on the back of a car. There's nothing humorous about it all in real life. It's not an unlikely story. It's common. In fact, one of our sons is kind of that guy at this point in his life. Just one of the thousand permutations that folly can take. It can be immorality, but it can also be things like get-rich-quick schemes or substance abuse to self-medicate the pains of life instead of seeking real help. It can be workaholism, which is in many ways the most basic ignoring of that which is most valuable in our lives. The more I list, the more likely that I'll leave something unimportant, so I'll stop listing them. You know the kind of things I'm talking about. There are a thousand ways to kill your life, and folly welcomes you to each and every one of them. Move in, stay for a while. Pastor Nate can do your funeral later. It'll be fine. You say, oh, no, Mike, it won't be like that. I can control it. Right. Just like all the others before you. Secrets want to come out. Folly wants to kill you. Emotional crutches that you lean on to get by help you stay crippled. Folly seems like the owner of a great place to visit, but you open that door and something reaches out and grabs you and may hang on to you for years, you know? As the eagles put it, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Don't fall for it. In choosing which hotel to lodge at, choose the one wisdom has built. Built. You will not be sorry in the end, and you cannot please God or walk with him and live with folly. Remember our theme, choosing wisdom is a vital aspect of Christian living. Now let me caution you. 
Nobody is wise in all ways at all times. We all, at one time or another, succumb to folly. Uh, a few weeks ago, Dave Kaiser from Mosaic Ministries is up here and confessed some things to us about how it had ever been revealed to him that he had grown prideful and arrogant. And his honesty plucked at our heartstrings because that's so refreshing and so healthy. And this is my moment to do the same, same thing, so let me confess to you some more of Dave Kaiser's problems. <laughs> I kid. <laughs> let me talk to you about a period I spent in folly. For me, it was back in 2010 through 2012, trying to borrow money to keep things afloat in an unsustainable situation. I was full-time pastoring, but in a small country church. And the side business and computers that had helped keep us going for so long was crashing and burning with the Michigan economy. It had always bounced back before, so I borrowed. Not from banks or credit cards, but good friends. I kept convincing myself that things were going to turn around. And they didn't, so I borrowed more. And things got worse. I hurt some friendships over that, and some other things were lost too. It hurt because my folly had hurt my friends. Here's my advice. When you realize you have been checked into the Folly Hotel for a while, get out fast. Move to wisdom, whatever it takes. Do not double down on the folly, okay? Confess, repent, be honest. Give in whatever it takes to get out of there and back to wisdom, do it before things get worse because they inevitably will. All of this so far today was meant not only as an introduction to some of the themes of Proverbs about wisdom, but also as a motivator. Now let's talk about what you can do to find your way to that wise hotel and stay there all your days. There'll be a lot more sermons in this series. They'll give lots of guidance on particulars, but already we have too much to chew on. But remember, wisdom is just inviting us in and accept, to accept her teaching. It's not about a list of rules. In fact, let's wrap up from the New Testament, James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's James 1, 5 through 8. It's a simple solution. If you want wisdom, if you recognize you don't have wisdom and desire it, just ask God. The passage emphasizes how well God will respond to that prayer. He won't resent you for asking. He won't say, well, it's about time. Or, too late, you're a hopeless case. Or, <laughs> I've been waiting for this. He loves to answer that prayer, but under circumstances outlined in the next few verses. What circumstances? Verse 6 says you must ask in faith. You say, Mike, we're in church. Of course, faith, we get it. We are used to that request in Scripture. But in this case, there's more. No doubting, because if you doubt, you'll be driven and tossed like a ship in a storm about to run aground. That person, that person will not receive because he's unstable. He's double-minded. Let me explain it in detail. The original language words here for faith and doubt can also refer to faithfulness. Given the sense of the text, here's what seems to be going on. When I come to a place in my life where I see I need wisdom, I need to follow wisdom, I need to have faith. But it's not just faith in God's path of wisdom. Sorry, it's not just faith in God, it's faith. I have to believe that God's path of wisdom for me is the right and only way to follow. It is faith in the process down which God wants to take me. I need to have no doubts about doing what wisdom says when I ask of it. I have to believe that God's path of wisdom for me is that only way and determined to follow it in faith. If I'm going in with reservations, I will get nothing. 
If I'm saying, I will embrace the path of wisdom, except I'm going to hang on to, oh, the gambling addiction and the meth or whatever, <laughs> all right? I get nothing. If I'm saying, I want to be wise, but I will still like to once in a while throw all wisdom to the winds and do stupid, crazy stuff that no wise person would ever do, you don't really want to be wise if that's what you're saying. You don't believe God's path of wisdom then. You're not asking in faith. You'll receive nothing. It's that simple. You don't just ask for wisdom. You thirst for it. You long for it in a way that guarantees action. You're saying, Lord, give me wisdom and I will do my best to do what she says from now on. You're saying, I'm not only checking into the Wisdom Hotel, I'm going to stay there from now on. This is the plea of Proverbs. Do that and really live. A few challenge questions here near the end of the sermon. Number one, at which hotel am I staying? Wisdom or folly? I think as I read the passage and spoke about it, you probably were able to identify some of the characteristics. You know which one you're living in. Perhaps you know you move back and forth between them, indecisive, and that you are like that person James talks about, a wave tossed back and forth by the wind. Where are you, wisdom or folly? Number two, what are the consequences of staying where I'm staying? If there's anything life teaches, it is this. When I choose an action, I choose the consequences that come from that action, right? For example, I can jump out in front of moving cars. If I do that, I embrace the risk of severe injury or death. Life also teaches that when I choose an action and the consequences with it, I don't get to control the extent of the consequences or their duration. I leap out in front of the moving car. I may be killed, which by and large is pretty permanent, okay? I may be injured, but who knows how badly or how long the recovery cycle is. And the third is that if I want a particular consequence, I should choose the actions that lead to it. For example, if I don't want to be killed or injured, I should not leap in front of the moving car. Now, this isn't about cars, but it's about all of life. Adultery, spending, how you respond to people, how hard you work, almost anything. Ask yourself, what are the consequences of staying where I am? Number three, what obstacles stand in the way of my sincerely asking God for wisdom in good faith? By in good faith, I, of course, mean that our intentions are to follow what wisdom says. As we said, you have to be really devoted to doing what wisdom says to pray that prayer and get results. If that isn't you right now, maybe it's time to spend the next couple weeks talking to God about areas of resistance in our lives. One of our sons who came to us through foster care was a great guy, strong as an ox. He could lift close to 400 pounds. When he was in high school and a fight was about to break out, he would stand over the would-be fighters and just loom there. I don't think you want to do this. And the fight would not happen. <laughs> he married his high school sweetheart at a wedding over which I presided. They had two darling kids. He was working on an associate's degree in engineering, which was cool for a guy who came from a home where he was the first to graduate from high school in 60 years. They were living in a home. He was making good money. The kids had a yard to play in. There were trees to climb. There was a small barn in the back for all the tools and toys of the family. There's no question this young man was building a good life, but there was also no question that wounds and problems from his past, years before he came to live with us, still haunted him. Before he came to us, his story was sad. The father was absent. The mom was heavily into drugs during those years, and thus his preteen years have been spent largely raised by a grandmother who worked in a strip joint, a mean old drill sergeant of a lady who traumatized the kids that had followed on her to raise. A life lived in folly was what he had seen, so having then spent his teen years with us, he had a very stark vision of the extreme two choices, wisdom or folly. And you'd think after seeing the benefits of a life lived as wisdom might dictate for so many years, from age 12 on, in fact, 
Did he choose wisdom? Something went wrong. And he walked away from his family. We know there was cheating. We know there was drug and alcohol abuse. We know he walked away from his job, charged tens of thousands of dollars on credit cards in just a couple of months, and descended into a messed up life from which he has yet to emerge. His wife and kids left behind, petty crimes, child support payments ignored, hospitalizations, jail time, subsistence living. And he left behind a single mom and two hurting kids who still say goodnight to their dad's picture every night and pray for him to start making good decisions, though I imagine hope dies a little more with each passing month. I don't know which came first. Maybe it was trying an illicit drug, maybe it was dabbling in an extramarital affair, maybe it was alcohol abuse or something else, but the descent has been shocking and brutal. Here's the thing. I know for certain that there were a few foolish choices, a few bad things he chose to fool around with. I don't know what they were and when. They doubtless seemed innocuous to him at the time, just like with us. But in them were the seeds of his own destruction. In them, he was checking in with folly for a long stay. So I pray it'll be different for you. I pray that you will pray that simple prayer, Lord, give me wisdom, and with your help, I will do my best to do what wisdom says for all my days. I pray that you'll listen to this series and embrace wisdom. She's here right now. Wisdom is walking right by, and you might miss her if you don't reach out and take her hand. Let me talk to you Christians first because we end. If you're not living a wise life, not really following Jesus, and you are a Christian, something is wrong. It's time to renounce folly and choose faith and wisdom. Tim Keller, in his series on Proverbs, prayed this prayer. Lord, I'd prefer if you would simply tell me what to do through some inner voice or some book of specific rules for every situation. Instead, I hear you calling me to grow into a wise person who discerns what to do. Help me to answer that call and give me understanding. Amen. Think about that. That should be the prayer of every one of us. Our big idea today, again, was this. Choosing wisdom is a vital aspect of the Christian life. Let's all commit to going where wisdom leads each day and to learning across the summer during this series. Let me talk briefly to those of you, perhaps, who are here and not Christians. In 1 Corinthians 1, the Bible says that we preach Christ crucified. He talks about how it's folly to some people, but he calls Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. All right? One of the titles of Jesus is wisdom of God. It sounds silly, it sounds old-fashioned to, to the modern world, but Jesus, God's son, is a centerpiece of wisdom. Jesus is God's position paper on everything. God wisely did what he could to save us. God is calling us to listen to his voice, his forgiveness. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sins, to free us from slavery to self and folly, to bring us eternal life. We need him. We need his forgiveness because Jesus paid the penalty of our sins. We need his spirit living in us to give us the power to do what wisdom says. We need him. If you've never called on him for salvation, forgiveness, deliverance, power to live as he wants, I want you to invite you to pray with me. Let's all bow our heads for a moment. Everybody in the room, please. But those of you who are here who maybe have not called upon Jesus to become your savior and to rescue you, this is the time to do that. I want to give you a few moments to do that. All right, we can all look up here then. Well, that's it. In weeks ahead, you will hear more and more from Proverbs. How does wisdom apply to my situations? How can I choose wisely under various stresses? Come back for each and every one. I hope you will. Let's pray.
Father, help us as we go from this place to reflect upon what wisdom calls us to, which is herself. And let us be willing to go there and live there all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.